Well, it's my privilege to open up God's Word to you this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to have the final sermon of the book of Hebrews, at least uh, for now. Uh, We've been two years going through it verse by verse, bite by bite. And this is the let's not miss the forest for the trees sermon. In other words, if you miss the big picture, the big idea for the small details, sometimes you're missing a key thrust application for your life. And so really the theme of Hebrews is is an application to run the race and keep running. If you're not running, if you've never been a runner, or you used to run and are not running, you need to run after Jesus because he's worthy to be pursued at all costs. And at the cost of your life, you pursue Christ. And that's Hebrews. It's giving driving motivations to be a runner. And ultimately, if you were to kind of capstone the, the book of Hebrews under one application, it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything, so let's run and run harder. Jesus is better, meaning he's the best. So if you have a list of things that he's better than, he really is the best. That's the point. And so this author is trying to drive motivation into the heart. And as we go point by point, chapter by chapter, each chapter being a point in your outline, I'm going to kind of start at chapter one and race to where we stopped last time and then slow down a little bit. But as we do that, I want these to be healthy flashbacks to what you encountered as you were taught through the book of Hebrews. There will be moments where we go, I remember that sermon, I remember that point, and I want that to be healthy for you as you connect the dots and see that Jesus is better. Throughout the book of Hebrews, for 13 chapters, that word better is used in one way or another over and over again. I didn't tally the number, unfortunately, but it's used a handful of times, and I'll point them out as we go. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the angels. I'm not going to belabor this point. I hit it last time, but it's basically to say Jesus is better than anything supernatural. Anything supernatural. Anything that's part of the unseen realm. Anything that's going on in heaven right now, Jesus is better than that. He's God. He's God. And he's the pinnacle and he is the focus of heaven. And you see this in verse 3 of chapter 1. He, who's Jesus, the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here it is, verse 4, having become as much superior, this is Jesus is better, much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus has the stamp imprint of God on him because Jesus by nature is God. He has no beginning, never had a beginning, will have no end. And he went on mission and made purification for our sins. And the vindication of that is he's at the right hand of the Father. He's superior to all angels. Angels are powerful beings, those who are forever sealed in heaven, and those who are condemned as demons to hell are all these created beings that we really can't imagine how incredible they are, 
But Jesus is far superior to anything we could even imagine. And there's a lot of things that people want us to run after and imagine that are supernatural or experience-oriented. Let's run after Jesus. Chapter 2. Jesus is better than family. We love our family. We love our fathers. We love Father's Day. We absolutely love family. But it's important to understand that when Jesus welcomes you into his family, you are family to Jesus Christ. This one who's exalted at the right hand of the Father, who's the same nature as the Father and the Holy Spirit, who is eternal Alpha and Omega, is also called brother to you. He's your brother. It's incredible. If you've ever had a physical brother that you were close to, it probably stirs your heart a little bit in terms of how Jesus is kin to you in that way, he runs alongside of you. Look at Hebrews 2.11 for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You have one bloodline source. You have gospel blood running through your veins. We're interconnected to each other. And he, therefore, verses uh, 17 and 18 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's fully human, fully merciful in that way, so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God. He became a brother, one source, close to us. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. Not only is Jesus better than the angels, better than supernatural stuff, he's He's better than family members. He is like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He knows you intimately. He's running with you. He cares about you. He's better than Moses. You say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? I haven't really thought of having some fond affection for Moses or worshiping Moses. Well, the early church, the early Jewish Christians really had Moses on a pedestal because he was the Old Testament version of their savior. They never believed he was God, but... He did amazing things that were Christ-like. He was the one who, who went to Egypt, went into enemy territory, and was the rescuer of people who were in bondage, the children of Israel, took them out of slavery. He was the one who God was performing miracles by Moses' command in amazing ways, just like any prophet in the Old Testament. And so to esteem him as this intercessor, the one who spoke to God on their behalf, and to exalt him was was not uncommon, but you could, you could potentially leave a focus for Christ and look to a man instead, and that would be wrong. And that's what is being called out here. Hebrews 3.3, 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of, here it is, here's the better word in the original language, worthy of more glory, better glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus has built it all. He built all of Old Testament history. He built everything that Moses was a part of. He was the one who was giving Moses power in his leadership. So exalt Jesus, not Moses, not Old Testament history. Hebrews three twelve through 13 talks about not falling away with an unbelieving heart. This kind of idolatry can end your relationship with the Lord and it can stymie it. It can, it can stifle it. Point four, chapter four. Jesus is better than physical rest. 
I just want to point out the idea that the wandering wilderness children, the ones who were rescued from Egypt, and this is all chronicling that Old Testament history, when they were rescued, they wanted physical rest. They wanted the promised land. And the first generation fell in the wilderness, and I believe they fell faithless. They really did not have a faith that would persevere, a real faith. And the warning of those children of Israel who wandered through the wilderness is don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't think you're okay. Don't think you've been rescued by Christ and fake yourself out wandering in the wilderness, starting to complain, wanting the world again, wanting to go back to Egypt. Why are we here? They wanted physical help to the degree that they were willing to just say, you know what, we're going to build a golden calf. We're going to complain. The tribe of Korah got sucked into the earth. At one point, if you read that in the book of Numbers, there were fiery serpents. There were all kinds of warnings that God was imposing on the children of Israel that were not heeded. And so you see this in Hebrews 4. They wanted physical salvation, but not spiritual. It says, therefore, verse 1, Hebrews 4, while the promise of entering his rest, this was the promised land, it still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they, this is the first generation, they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't have real faith. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world." In other words, it's as simple as this. The first generation, they were not united in faith, so they fell in the wilderness. We're not looking for physical rest. As believers, we are looking for spiritual rest in heaven for all of eternity, and we're persevering towards that. As Christians, we're running this marathon race, and we have to do it by faith. When does faith become alive to us in that? Well, Hebrews 4.11 says that the... It says, let us therefore, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that one may, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, the only media that is powerful enough to convince your heart that you need to pursue heaven and not slack on God in this life is the media called the word of God. There's all kinds of multimedia, right? There's all kinds of screen time that people are, are, you know, just immersing and drenching themselves in. The word of God with the Holy Spirit will impress upon you that heaven is real and that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than physical rest. He gives eternal rest. That's why the promised land was called physical. It was the physical place of rest for the Old Testament Israelites. And that pictured heaven to strive for that rest that's even better. All right, chapter five. Chapter five enters into a series of chapters that are around the priesthood. And I want to make this point. Jesus is better than priests. If you'll look back, just as a lead in going into chapter 5, look at verse 15 of chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
And then verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We have as Christians a great high priest who knows you, who sympathizes with you, who cares about you, who made you. That word high priest almost sounds archaic to us because we don't, we didn't live in the Old Testament times. We didn't live when, in the days when believers in Yahweh, in God, would have to make sacrifices, and they, they appointed men to, um, to sympathize with them and to, to be like a bridge between them and God. Well, we don't have those people in our lives. We have Jesus Christ, who is a better priest, the ultimate priest, and that's what chapter 5 is building here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. This priest will deal gently with you, even if you're ignorant or wayward, since he, that priest that was appointed, is beset with weakness. So he'll relate to you. It'd be like if you were part of a religious system that still had priests, you know that they're not perfect people and they relate to you, and, but they're still the way to God is through that physical priest, right? Well, the Bible says that that's all, all the Old Testament priesthood has been superseded, has been answered, has been fulfilled with a great high priest who is your brother, who's also the second member of the Trinity at the right hand of the Father, who is God, who knows you intimately, who sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, who knows what you're dealing with right now. The issue that perhaps you're dealing with, Jesus is dealing with you on that right now and cares about you and loves you. How do you know he can sympathize with you? Verses seven through nine. This is Jesus who is at the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse five just says, you are my son, today I've begotten you, meaning Jesus is the son of God. He is the same essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then in the days of his flesh, as fully human, it says, Jesus offered, look at this in verse seven, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is where Jesus is pouring his heart out. He's at the end of himself, He knows what he's in for going to the cross. He knows he's going to bear all of the sins and all of the wrath of the sins of all who would believe on him onto himself as he went to the cross. He knows what he's in for and he's begging God. The the verbiage here is that he's wailing. What do you do when you're at the end of yourself where there's no one else to turn to? Where do you go? You go on your face before God and say, God, help me. I'm at the end of myself. This is Jesus. This is how sympathetic he can be with you. It was loud cries and tears who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. The father was helping him and listening. Verse eight, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How humble is that? Jesus, who is the eternal son of God, took on humanity. And how authentic is Jesus' humanity? He actually learned things. Remember, as a boy, he grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. He, he was a learner, and he learned through obedience, never failing, never sinning, but perfect obedience. Verse 9, being made perfect. In other words, he was affirmed in his perfection. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is better. 
He's better than priests. Don't put your trust in priests. Jesus is who we put our trust in. Point six, Jesus is better than Abraham. Here we go again. I didn't have a struggle this morning thinking, am I going to worship Abraham or Jesus, right? It wasn't really a hard thing. Well, the author of Hebrews is working chronologically backwards. If I can contradict myself, he's working backwards. And he's beginning with Moses. He's talking about Abraham. And then in a minute, he's going to talk about Melchizedek. Say that three times, right? Backwards. Anyway, but no, he's talking about heroes of their history and saying, don't elevate them. Abraham. Who is Abraham? Abraham was the one who is the father of faith. He's the one who's known in the Old Testament as exercising faith where he believed God. This is Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's the Old Testament version of a gospel believer. He had heard a promise that God through him, through his loins, through his family, all of the families of the earth were going to be blessed. Not just Jewish families, all of the families. This is Old Testament prophetic gospel saying all of the nations are going to be blessed. There will be believers for all of the ages that will come through your example believing. The author of Hebrews says, as significant as that is, don't put your trust in Abraham. In other words, don't put your trust in the religion of Abraham. His faith was awesome, but our faith is the same as his. That's what he's saying. Now, watch this. It says, for when God, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now stop there. Who did God swear by? How secure is our salvation? How secure was this gospel promise in the Old Testament that applies to the gospel of the New Testament? How solid is the unbreakable chain of salvation, Genesis to Revelation? God said, look, I can't put my trust in Abraham's faith. I'm going to take an oath with myself. God is putting faith within himself to say, I'm sign, sealing, and delivering that this gospel is true. Abraham was a sinner just like us. And it goes on to say that. It says, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes and oath is a final for confirmation. Then verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, for we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What, what is the guarantee of our salvation? God swore an oath to himself that you would be saved. That's the application, and he can't lie. So if you're a Christian, you're in, and nothing's gonna change that because God can't lie. How mercurious is our world? How topsy-turvy is our world? Don't we need something this solid? Look at the end of Hebrews. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast Anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Literally, it's like a picture of God the Father saying, I'm going to anchor your soul right now with Jesus Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. I'm throwing the anchor into the inner sanctum. I'm answering 
Your question of will you be counted as holy forever in heaven? Yes, Jesus is your anchor. He is your anchor. All the way in the inner sanctum. It's amazing. All right. Chapter 7, Melchizedek. So we're working backwards. Moses, Abraham, now Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the figure in the Bible that's the most like Jesus, who I don't believe is really Jesus. He, he doesn't have a genealogical record. He doesn't have, you know, any record leading to where he came from. But he is sort of compared to Jesus as a priest who ultimately is different than Jesus, but reminds us of him. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which I think is ancient Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Abraham had been at war. He's returning from that slaughter. And then he's giving tithes to God through Melchizedek. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother of genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek looks like Jesus. The idea of him not having a record is just to distinguish him from Abraham. We have Abraham's record. We have Moses' record. Melchizedek, we don't know his record. It's a bit mysterious. It's to, it's to designate Melchizedek as a true symbol of Jesus who is eternal, who's better than everything. Jesus is better than even Melchizedek. Verse 15 of chapter 7 This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. This is Jesus. He arises, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So it's not based on some genealogical record, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why is Jesus indestructible? In what way? Well, he died. But did he stay dead? No, he rose again, indestructible. Jesus is eternal. He's your high priest. He's he's the one worthy to go after. Chapter eight, we're running the race here. We got 15 more minutes to go. Chapter eight, we'll get there. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Let me just put that in real brass tack language. Jesus is better than all religion. Jesus is better than liturgy. He's better than any form of worship. He's better than any ambiance, whether old school ambiance, old school smoke or new school smoke. Jesus is better than any worship experience. He's better than religious rites, history, church history or covenants. He's better than all of these things. Jesus is better than religion. Why? Because he is our mediator. If you go to chapter eight, the lead in is talking all about the True tent worship, verse 2. You have tent worship that was happening or tabernacle worship in the Old Testament. And it was set up by God. And priests, verse 3, were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And all of these things, verse 4, were according to the law. And verse 5, all of the temple furniture, all of the pomp and circumstance, all of that was a copy or a shadow or a template of heaven on earth. And God set that up for the people of Israel in a physical way to say, this is what God's presence could be like. It's kind of the ABCs of of learning and education. This is an elementary school level 
understanding of God and holiness and dynamic. But all of this has been superseded or answered in Christ. And you see in verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. Covenant means promise. They were under an old covenant promise. Now he, what he mediates is, here's that word, better, since it is enacted on better promises. What does that mean? Why is it better? Why is Jesus better than the old covenant? Jesus is better than the old covenant because Jesus can do what the old covenant could never do. Jesus can do what religion cannot do for you. Now, the old covenant, the Old Testament was the way of faith, but then it became obsolete when Jesus came. So for the Israelites or new Jewish Christians, for them to go, I want to go back to the old ways. I want to go back to religion where I can just sort of go back to the elementary school of um, God and just feel safe in that way. That would actually be returning to false religion because Jesus had answered it all and was saying, come to me as the true mediator for your heart. Jesus can do what religion cannot do, and it is simply this. He can open your heart as the great physician, take out your old heart that does not want God, and replace it with a new heart that does want God. Bible says when you become a Christian, you are a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. You're made alive. He's the physician of the heart. That's the language that is here at the end of Hebrews 8. This is cited from Jeremiah 31, 31. He says in verse 8, I will establish a new covenant. And then verse 9, not like the covenant I made with your fathers. And then in verse 10, it says, I will put my laws in your minds and write them on your hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. In verse 12, he doesn't remember your sins anymore. It's amazing what he's done. So he's better. He's better than the old covenant. The old covenant couldn't do that kind of deep cleaning work. Chapter 9, Jesus is better than the tent. Um, This is, again, building on tabernacle worship. Verse 1 speaks of uh, this first covenant for worship, an earthly place of holiness. Verse 2, the tent was prepared. If you remember, the tent was, you know, kind of this large, almost football field-sized tent and tabernacle that was rectangular in, in shape. There was a first section you could go to that was, you know, for commoners and, and people. And then there was another section, and then there was a a section called the Holy of Holies. Well, this is kind of just generally talking about two sections, a section where most people could go for religious duties and and worship. But then there was the inner sanctum that once a year, a high priest would go in at risk of death to offer the sacrifice at the mercy seat. And then in verse eight of chapter nine, everything is picturing the old way versus the new way. It's a pivot point verse. Look at this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. Simply put, if you're trusting in religion, it's as if you're still under the old covenant. That's all still standing in your life. You have to trust Christ to enter in to God's holy presence. Chapter 9, verse 11, Christ is called the high priest's. He's given you a, the greater and more 
perfect tent not made with hands. It's once for all that he entered in to give you eternal redemption. Why is this important? When you become a Christian, your salvation is forever. You're no longer on a system of trying to treadmill, make yourself right with God. It's forever. Your conscience, according to verses 13 and 14, is actually deep cleaned. You know the difference between surface cleaning, where you just kind of mop up, and then deep, deep cleaning? Well, Jesus has deep cleansed your heart and your conscience when you are a Christian. Nothing else can cleanse you on this level. Chapter 10, Jesus is better than sacrifices. I'm just going to touch on this. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, listen to this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus' testimony about the old covenant. He's saying, God, you don't really desire our religious activities. You want our heart, not our religious activities. Don't let the culture drive you towards religion. Don't let the pressure of this world drive you to a do's and don'ts religion where your good outweighs your bad or you think it does. Be driven to Christ. That's what he wants. It's the whole point. Jesus is better than any sacrifice because his sacrifice gives you something that the sacrifices couldn't give you. His sacrifice gives you confidence with him. Do you want confidence with God? Come through Christ. He says, verse 20 of chapter 10, this is a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And then verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Every time I read that verse, it's just Deep cleansing, deep cleaning that God did for us to give us direct access and assurance in our relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? That's who we need. Chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. Let's go through every one right now. Just kidding. Go to the last two verses of chapter 11. It says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something, here it is, better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This whole of Hebrews 11 could be pictured as a two-leg relay race. Do I have some of your attention? Okay, so it's like you have the Old Testament heroes are all runners, the pre-flood heroes, the post-flood heroes, all of the Old Testament runners are running that first leg. I've never run an official relay race, but I've watched My son run one. I'm interested in it. And it's always amazing to watch the baton handoff, right? The passing of the baton. It's amazing. And I wouldn't want to be the guy catching it like this because that everything is resting on securing that baton in that moment and then taking off again. The Hebrews 11 heroes of the faith, whether Abraham, Isaac, Rahab, Jacob, whomever, right? They're all running the same race as those who run in the New Testament church run, but they're running the first leg and we as the church run the second leg. And the baton handoff could be pictured as Jesus coming and dying for our sins. When Jesus died for our sins, he died for us, the future ones that would 
come to life on earth in belief, and he died retrospectively for those who had come before him. It's a splash effect. It's an amazing thing that redemption did. But the first leg of the race are the Old Testament runners who are looking for a Messiah. They don't know his name. They don't know what it's all going to be like or look like, but they believe anyway. They believe everything that God has told them thus far, and they're looking for heaven, and they're running that race, and then Christ comes, and it's as if the baton is handed off to the New Testament church saying, I'm going to finish the race for you. I'm going to keep running, and we're all going to win together in the end. That's what Hebrews 11 is saying. Isn't that incredible? We're all part of that race. And it's as if to say the Old Testament saints couldn't win unless we believe and keep believing. And when we win, we all win together as one big team. Hebrews 11. Jesus is better than our heroes. He's the pinnacle. He's why we run. Chapter 12. Jesus is better than this world. Jesus is better than the world. Verses 1 and 2 talk about laying aside every weight of sin. We're, we're running a race. We're taking our old shoes off. We're putting on our running shoes. We're unfettering ourselves from bad habits and sin habits. We're kicking our legs out on the blocks. We're getting ready to run the marathon race and run with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus who ran before us. And we're going we're gonna to do it for him. Jesus is better than this world. We're not going to be beaten up by this world. We're not going to let this world take us captive. We're not going to let the world defeat us. We're not going to stand idle and let the vines of sin um, kind of entangle us and drag us down. We're going to be runners for God. It's a sin-cursed, upside-down, confused, transient, temporary world that is going to come to an end. Hebrews 12, 27 says, yet once more indicates that the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, as runners, we run a race all the way up to heaven. And it's as if we're running and there's an earthquake going on as we run. And things are shaking loose and shaking apart behind us, right? And this world is topsy-turvy. It's not worth investing in because it's temporary. We're running to heaven as things are shaking around us going into crevices and cracks and falling apart. And you know what I'm talking about. If there was ever a time in the history of our lifetime to look around and say, yeah, this world really is going to be shaken up by God one day and only what's for Christ is going to remain, it's now. We can see that more clearly. So we're supposed to run realizing that God is going to shake it all up and only what's for Christ will last. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He's going to burn everything up. Chapter 13. Should we finish or just delay to next time? We'll go. Okay. Jesus is better than everything. Verse 13. This is really the sum total of the applications that I went through over the last month or two. Verse 13. Let us go to him, Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we, we seek a city that is to come. Jesus died outside of Jerusalem. Everybody was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Jesus died out there. He bore a reproach 
by being the holy son of God. He didn't fit in when he walked this world. We too, because we know Jesus is better, Jesus is eternal, Jesus is not temporary, Jesus is not transient, Jesus is not impersonal, Jesus is not unrighteous, Jesus is not unhealthy, Jesus is everything for us, he's better. We run outside the camp, outside of the comforts of this world, and we align ourselves with him at all cost. We bear the reproach he bore. We do that with him because we realize everything else is temporary. When you do this, when you realize everything is temporary, you are free from the world. You're free from everything and you're free to worship. You can exercise brotherly love, not hate, hospitality, not selfishness, a marriage bed that's undefiled, not adultery. Um, You can be free from money lust and have contentment. You can have church, not isolation. You can have gospel, not hopelessness. C.T. Studd graduated from Cambridge as a cricketer. He was a known athlete, and with his buddies, he was part of what was called the Cambridge Seven. And the Cambridge Seven were young men who graduated from Cambridge, and they decided to join Hudson Taylor out in the China Inland Mission because Hudson would come around town and preach in churches and chapels in England and and say, hey, come join me. This is worth giving your life to. C.T. Studd did that. Later, he survived that mission and created the Heart of African Mission Crusades later on for Africa. But he wrote this poem that kind of summarizes everything. I'll read a little bit. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Listen to this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, the Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 